CSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show all about housing, renters' issues, and collective action. During the program, we want to talk about the very important and very complex world of evictions happening all around us in the world of COVID. And who better to pick apart this than Shanti Singh, communications coordinator for Tenants Together, and who you may also know for actions from uh, DSA San Francisco. So in this program, in the front half, we talk about the bills. We talk about what's going on at different levels of government to help protect renters. And in the back half, we talk a bit more about the theoretical side of the tenants' movement. But let's just get into things. So welcome, Shanti. Hi, happy to be here. A long time. It's been it's it's been a long time coming. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you anyone can feel free to go on to twitter.com and uh, search for our respective handles to find many, many, many threads yelling at each other about land use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a sa- this is a safe space. Uh, there will be no land use talk uh, because there's something very important to talk about uh, and pressing to talk about, and that is uh, evictions in California and beyond. Uh, but you know, so uh, so first off. What is happening and why is it important? How, how would you phrase the entire eviction avalanche? I mean, I was going to, you, you took the words right out of my mouth because I was going to say avalanche. Um, but essentially, I mean, like this is, I mean, this is a national crisis. I think uh, in California where I think as you would probably under like acknowledge wholeheartedly, we're in that California, uh, classic California dilemma where it's like not, where it's slightly better than it is in other places. Um, in terms of what the eviction avalanche is looking like, uh, in that, like, you know, we're not having uh, Zoom courts to expedite evictions, but it's, uh, so it's comparatively better than that, but it's still quite bad. And considering how about a quarter of America's renters, uh, we are facing a pretty acute crisis of eviction, and if not eviction, indebtedness, homelessness, a lot of things wrapped up. Yeah, and no matter where you are, I mean, so I think that's something to say. California, especially its metros, are, you know, bad because of their extremely high cost of living. Uh, Homelessness is extremely acute in several uh, several of our cities. But no matter where you are, uh, no matter if your place is affordable— Eviction is 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 bad, and it causes bad outcomes. And I think you know people can be maybe too, way too blasé of like, oh, people dust themselves off and get up to it. But I mean, there is a lot of just people who can easily slide from one eviction to homelessness. And I, I don't, I think it's going to be extremely acute here. But I think every single place in the country, you have to watch out for that. Yeah, and you know, I mean, even here in California, it stays on your record for years and years and years if you're evicted even once. So, you know, especially like regardless of whether you're evicted with cause or completely without cause, like, you know, it is something that it is an indelible mark that like affects you for the but a lot of times for the rest of your life. Um, and, and increases your ability to find housing in the future if you're evicted even one time. Again, like you and I both know the magnitude of this, but this is there was already an eviction crisis before coronavirus hit, before the pandemic hit. Um, what we're seeing is an intense escalation of that because we're seeing Great Depression level of job losses and inability to pay. And so, like, you know, I don't think you disagree with me on this. Like, this is very much 
you know, exposing all of the structural inequities and issues, like all of them, whether it's tenants' rights, whether it's land use, whether it's a set, like all of these things, whether it's like labor inequality, whether it's racial inequality, whether it's income inequality, like it's just bringing all this to the surface in the terms in in the in a crisis that we've never seen, uh, I think, in our lifetimes. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone is trying to quantify what we're up against. 28 million is the number that people throw around. I'm not exactly sure what the vintage is on that. Uh, but then on top of it, I think people are looking at, uh, you know, percentage of renters not paying rent right now, which I think actually kind of, it seems like the worst is yet to come insofar as, I was like looking at these numbers, like, I think like a normal, a normal month was, you know, before March, the beginning of March, people were paying like 81%. And that gives you a baseline of even in a normal time, 19% of people are having trouble paying their rent. Uh, mm-hmm. And this dropped down, I think, starting at 69%, and then kind of made it a comeback as time went on, weirdly, you know, I'd say, weirdly enough, as we kind of reached this COVID new normal thing, because, uh, you know, people are getting, uh, people are getting help. But what's coming up the pipe? You know, unemployment is, you know, at still extremely unusual rates, 10 to 15 percent. And we are about to, at the end of July, hit the end of extra unemployment assistance. And I think that's that's I think a lot of people are saying that is the real, real danger line is the end of July unemployment assistance hitting a new a new kind of tier of of bad stuff happening. I, I don't know. I mean, this. What would you say is the entire shape of this? Because it was never good. It's getting worse, and I think because we're not going to get a vaccine for a year or so, it's going to get a lot, lot worse. No, I think you're right, and I also think one of the things that like that one of the things that may be um, complicating our assessment and estimations of how many people are able to completely make their rent or not right now is that uh, a lot of people. Uh, contributed their stimulus checks, you know, their their quote their Trump bucks if they were lucky enough, yeah. quote unquote lucky enough to even get that twelve hundred dollars payment. Which, as an aside, you know, the the median payment, uh, median rent in California, I think, is fourteen hundred. So that wouldn't have even covered a month of rent, even if you put all of it in all of your whole check into yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but, but, but it does let you know that if you're in other less weird places, people might have seen this check. It's like, oh, this gives me three months rent if you live in a place that's cheap. And, you know, that's, you know, it's running out now. It's right. And I, even I, I mean, yeah, that's running out for them. And for Californians, it's running out even sooner. But people like we know, oh, yeah. people, we know that people have used their their stimulus check that they got their one time stimulus check. We know that people have taken out loans from their families. We know that people have foregone other necessary expenses right now uh, for their families, their communities, their neighbors themselves. Uh, so it's like, yeah, like, but there, we've, it's actually kind of, you're right, we've underplayed, are probably downplaying or underestimating the scale of the crisis up until now because people have been taking their stimulus checks, personal loans, savings, and also unemployment insurance money, which is also about to run out to cover their rent payments and they no longer can do that. So it actually is escalating. And, you know, I mean, I think that's something that tenant advocates anticipated several months ago when we started this sort of campaign, this demand to cancel rent. We knew from the ground that people were, you know, like like people say, the rent eats first, right? So like we know that people were already, you know, putting everything else in their lives aside to be make sure to cover their rent 
checks, which means that any estimation about how many people are making their rent versus how many people are not was not going to be an accurate reflection of what the picture was in the future. And we're seeing that now that, you know, obviously that stimulus payment is totally inadequate, but also now people's unemployment insurance is running out and we are truly reaching a real crisis point that we were, it's not that we weren't at that before, but we are certain we cannot hide it now. Yeah, and you look at, I mean, I think that this is a problem at every city level, every state level, at the national level. I mean, even globally, except, you know, in other countries where uh, they're less benighted, they actually are kind of a permanent plans to take care of people. You know, it's like people aren't just going to be like, oh, we'll carry you for a few months and then you'll, <laughs> you're will you on your own. Uh, but at every level of government, and it matters where you are, it's, it's always an assumption renters aren't quite people. You know, and it's the chance of things getting passed. You know, a, a city like San Francisco, where you're based out of, uh, renters can make some stuff happen. At the state level, renters can make less stuff happen. At the federal level, renters can have even less and less happen. And I think that's the question we have is just like, what can we do at every level of government to make sure that we can actually help people? Because it's going to take a lot of different levels of intervention with, I think, a lot of different amounts of, like, power base to, to let it happen, you know? And I think, you know, so, I mean, to start with, like, SF, uh, you know, which is a city and county, uh, you know, uh, you know Dean Preston uh, is a supervisor, and I'd say uh, certainly has become the right guy for the right time as far as this, uh, as far as, you know, his uh, history of, of representing tenants to keep them housed. Uh, he has, you know, intervened to uh, basically... Stop evictions. Why don't you just talk a bit more about what's happening at the at the county level there? Yeah, and again, like I was like, uh, I'll preface this by saying uh, one quick note, which is that because of the way in which the sort of eviction moratorium, because of the way California politics works, as I'm sure listeners of this podcast know, um, as I'm sure you know, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, deference to municipalities. And what that can mean from a tenant's rights perspective, which is the reality the tenants together has always lived in as an organization, is that your eviction protections differ very greatly depending on the specific municipality out of what, 500 municipalities that you live in. Local control just works. You gotta love it. It's a very imperfect patchwork. And, you know, I'm not saying the tenants in San Francisco, such as myself, necessarily feel lucky all the time. But when you feel, we don't. But when you look at, you know, the general, uh, the general landscape, we can feel lucky at times. And I'm bringing this up uh, as a preface to what I'm going to talk about what's going on in SF is because, you know, what's going on in SF is stronger than, like, what's going on in most California municipalities. But also the structure of Governor Newsom's moratorium on evictions, and I say moratorium on evictions in air quotes, is effectively deference to local municipalities to pass what they see fit. And, yeah. you know... The, 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 the benefit to that is, yes, you can pass something that's stronger than what could be passed possibly in the state legislature, especially in a state legislature where there only there's only one or two renters in the entire legislature. Great. But what happens most of the time is that, you know, you see kind of nothing passed. And so you see it kind of like kicking the can down the road down to the municipal level. And you also, for tenant, from a tenant advocate's perspective, see a whole patchwork of protections or no protections that vary across 500 municipalities across the state. So, I mean, in San Francisco, 
because Dean and, and full disclosure, uh, again, probably not something that your listeners don't know, but maybe some of them don't. Uh, used to be the executive director of Tenants Together is no longer affiliated with the organization. He left to run for supervisor and is now a supervisor. So effectively what he passed, which is being uh, legally contested by uh, the California apartment uh, or the San Francisco Apartment Association, the Apartment Owner- Owners Association. Have they, have they actually, have they actually filed? Or is it actually in courts now? I think so. Uh, I'm just I'm just forgetting who's actually suing him, and I don't want to get sued, so I'm going to say allegedly. Just kidding. Yeah. Um, but but they, there's a threat of a lawsuit. I know that much. Um, uh, and I believe the threat of the lawsuit was intended to uh, pressure the mayor into uh, pushing back on this pr- this protection. But the thing is, like the the law that Supervisor Preston, the ordinance that he passed. I believe was voted unanimously by the Board of Supervisors regardless of their political faction. Um, so, you know, this gambit that the landlord lobby is trying to try to pressure the mayor into vetoing it wouldn't really work anyway because he has a cross-faction veto-proof majority for it. Mm. Um, but effectively what it would do is it would prevent COVID-19 related economic hardship from being a cause for eviction. So that kind of goes into the question of what like just causes. And if you are going to, if you're a landlord and you're going to evict someone, file an eviction based off of the cause that they lost uh, income or ability to pay because of COVID-19 hardship, that would uh, uh, basically prohibit that, right? And they're already suing to overturn that just like Los Angeles uh, landlord lobbyists are suing to overturn even weaker protections in Los Angeles County um but you know i I think right now they're at the stage where it's like threat of a lawsuit to try to get the mayor to change her mind but also like she really can't because there is a veto proof majority behind any decision that she would make so they're just trying to play hardball right off the bat um and so basically like this is kind of the first i would consider this a first step in the right direction you know i mean the demand our demand has always been to cancel rent and cancel mortgages which i can get into later and that's something that 75 percent of californians across the political spectrum agree with as a policy uh but but yeah it's a step in the right direction to at least prevent that from becoming a cause by which you can evict someone during the pandemic and so and also what dean has done i think is also what's you know and we can also talk about this later but just want to bookmark this uh what i think uh in a in a in some form uh Assemblymember David Chu is trying to pursue at the uh, state level with Assembly Bill 1436. Another thing we can get into. Yes, yeah. So I think yeah, when we get up to the state level, we'll talk about I think yeah, how this is effectively a lot of the same uh, same business. I, I guess here's like a philosophical slash legal question that I still don't really fully understand, which is, okay, so the making sure that this is not the basis for evictions, it means that as someone who can't pay rent, they'll incur debt in you know some technical way, but you can't be evicted, in what ways uh, can it still harm you? Can it harm credit ratings? Can it harm future ability to, to, to rent? Is it still on your record? I, I just don't know. Like, for example, in what ways is this not de facto canceling rent? Um, well, that's a good question, because the thing is, it's like, it's like if you are... There, the, you're, you're right to ask this question because there's a lot of murkiness that comes up in the next, what the next step is. Because it's not, it's not de facto canceling rent because at the end of the day, it doesn't legally absolve you from that obligation to pay, right? But, but what and are the also, mechanisms to, to put the screws on people to get them to pay? Because I guess traditionally, if you don't pay, I mean, here, I guess stupid question, if you don't pay 
and you get evicted, do people ever, do they still try to collect that after the fact? They're like, well, we're writing that off. I, I don't know exactly. Yeah. They can't. So you're, if even if you're, let's say, I mean, putting aside for a second the fact that, you know, your landlord could basically not cite that as the cause in which they're evicting you and cite some other cause, right? Even if that's the real reason. Yeah. Um, they can still go after you in small claims court. There are other ways to be able to collect that money from you. Even it's a, what all this is really putting is maybe a prohibition on that being the specified cause in the formal court process. And sure. there's so many situations outside of that. Also, like your landlord could simply intimidate you into leaving outside of filing a court process, which is what we're seeing right now. We're seeing yeah. a lot of illegal outs where they just throw you out. We're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, just people who understandably don't necessarily know all of their rights and think that their landlord just believe what their landlord says, where they're saying like, well, it's yeah, you know, I have a right to evict you, so get out. And they just leave, not realizing that their landlord is lying to them. Um, but also like, you know, even from the legal, from a legal basis, even if you outlaw this, like, you know, your landlord can still pursue their debts in small claims court and other court mechanisms. It just won't officially be through the quote unquote unlawful detainer process uh, an unlawful detainer is basically what your landlord files when they are, by the book, legally attempting to evict you. So, so that's one answer to the question is, in what ways is this different than cancel grant? And the question is, small claims court is still going to hang over your head, which is possibly either, you know, which could possibly even do other leverage to evict people through a back door. But uh, whereas real rent cancellation, you know, the, the, the debt would not exist. Exactly. And, yeah. and and yeah, that that plus they can, you know, if your if your landlord finds that they don't have that legal recourse to cite that as the reason for evicting you, they could just simply try to find other ways, uh, uh, some extra legal, some legal but disingenuous uh, to get you out. Yeah, I mean, most of the state in California and of course the rest of the country, just cause eviction isn't even something that's protecting them until last year with 1482. But even that, there's in, you know enforceability issues. I mean, everything's everything's a mess. You know who? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the bills that tenants together and that I, I I was working on and we were all working on a coalition and members were working on until very recently was a bill that would have uh, given. Uh, directed city attorneys, district attorneys, and county attorneys to enforce the provisions of Assembly Bill 1482, which passed last year, the Tenant Protection Act. So this was a bill, this bill was SB 1190. It was co-written by the sponsor um, who Tenants Together, we worked with on our right to organize bill, amazing renters' rights and labor advocate, Senator uh, Maria Elena de Rosso. It was, um, I believe, co-authored, the only co-author who put his name to it was actually Senator Wiener. And uh, it was basically, say, directing during, like, you know, again, this is being filed and heard during in the middle of this pandemic this past month um, to enforce the protections uh, passed, like the, 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 the just cause and uh, right cap protections that do apply from AB 1482. It was basically directing, um, uh, city and municipal and county uh, attorneys to have the uh, equipment, <laughs> rather the legal equipment and um, direction to enforce those protections and act as enforcers of those protections. Because to be honest, the status quo is that the enforcement really falls on us as tenant organizers and tenant organizations um, to do that without like actual like participation from the state. 
Um, so this bill would have in, uh, authorized them to do so, and it was absolutely gutted in the middle of the pandemic by the state legislature. So, so I guess I, I mean, so yeah, is, is it right now, 1482, if you want to back it up, in a lot of cases, it's up to the tenant to really just take it up in the legal system by themselves, which is, you know, good luck. Not many people have that yeah. ready. So uh, as, as far as allowing city attorneys or empowering them, what was, was there even like, was the argument against it would like add cost or just it wouldn't be fair to landlords or what, what was, did people even have a fig leaf of why they wanted to gut this? I, I, I'd never quite under, I'd never really read the statements by anybody. I'll be honest, I don't think there were statements. So I think we tried to find we tried to find that out because effectively like this this was all something that played out while the bill was on the floor a few yeah. weeks ago. And including people who had voted for A B fourteen eighty two, uh, basically said like we're not going to vote for this bill if it has this uh, provision in it, which was seventy five percent of the meat of the bill itself. Um, and they said that on the as it was on the floor. Um, I got to be honest with you. I haven't like we have asked, yeah. um, uh, and I this is by no means um, impugning Senator Durazo for having made the very difficult decision of letting like the only other provisioner for a bill survive, um, which is really disappointing because what was gutted this all this whole enforcement piece was gutted, and what was left was a very important but basic protection for domestic violence victims that they can break their lease. Um, yeah. uh, in a, in a location where domestic violence or a crime, violent crime has occurred without incurring penalties from their landlord, which is just what your landlord's supposed to do. But essentially, like a number, a number of state senators, um, I think at least eight, including at least three who voted for AB 1482 last year, uh, basically said, uh, we're going to scrap the whole bill, including the domestic violence provisions, if you don't take the meat of the bill out, 75% of the bill, which is enforcement of the bill we already voted for. And like, I, I haven't heard any justification for why that was. I don't really think the cost would have been that much, but like, you know, like, I, I mean, cost could technically be a factor in the sense that, you know, directing uh, directing city or county or municipal uh, or uh, a district attorneys to uh, enforce the law will incur some costs technically. Um, but really, no, I don't think we really, from the tenant movement side, I don't really think we got any answers. Yeah. I really don't. If I did, I would share them because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, I think the cynical read is that, you know, they got a message from the CIA that says, no, do not support this. And they said, yes, sir. And they killed it. I mean, I would say I don't want to be cynical if there's a really good galaxy brain reason why you would be for 1482 but against enforcement. But I I have yet to hear that galaxy brain defense by anybody as much as I'm curious to hear it. But I, I agree with you. I mean, like, I would love to know because it does not make a lick of sense. Um, yeah. Especially now. I mean, if you're going to pass, a, I mean, I think uh, my uh, our executive director, uh, Lupe, had said it together, like, I think she kind of said it well, where she was like, it's like, okay, you voted for a 1482, so you bought a fleet of fire trucks, and now everything is on fire, and you're not willing to pay for the gas to yeah. go into the fire. Like, that's like 100% what it is. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I, I'm always, I'm always, uh, you know, I, I want to hear people defend it in good faith, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. Okay, before we get to the state level, I just want to ask, okay, so SF intervening to stop this, uh, to stop the COVID debt from being a basis for eviction, was this wearing their county hat? So I'm just other places. Is this municipal 
uh, governments would enforce or would actually be the county level governments would have to enforce this because county governments you know through the sheriffs enforce evictions elsewhere i'm just not really sure uh what the what the fine point of that is yeah it's kind of a little bit of both um because uh you know we've seen municipalities pass protections what i'll say is that you know, I, I think there are protections. So there are some protections that are being passed at the municipal level. There are some protections that are being passed at the county level. So, for example, there are like Los Angeles countywide protections passed by their county board of supervisors, and AGLA, the landlord like association, the apartment association of Greater Los Angeles, is I believe suing to overturn the county level protection. But you can also pass municipal protections. So it's really a mix of both, um, yeah. and it is. A complicated jurisdictional thing, which I won't necessarily pretend to be an expert on, but effectively you can pass uh, protections at both levels. Um, in terms of you know the county being um, uh, responsible for the sheriffs and uh, the cities being responsible for the local police department, I think that becomes more relevant in terms of. Um, I think the most practical point at which that's becoming relevant right now is these illegal lockouts. Um, so we're seeing these illegal lockouts, like Tenants Together and other organizations are trading against these illegal lockouts. Uh, local organizations like Los Angeles Tenants Union are basically creating like physical defense networks against these lockouts. Uh, the LA Times reported, and I think this is true across California, that these, and, and the Guardians reported on this in the East Bay, like these lockouts are disproportionately um, impacting Black and Latinx families. Um, where the landlord is throwing somebody's stuff out and calling the sheriffs or the police department. Yeah. Sometimes it varies on who responds to help them enforce um, completely illegal extrajudicial, like throwing someone's stuff out onto the street, like kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, I think that's where it becomes like county versus city jurisdiction becomes a little more relevant. Um, in terms of reining in the sheriffs versus the cops, but I do want to kind of highlight that because that is that is where uh, sheriffs and police, especially in this particular moment, especially in this moment where we are really talking about defunding police and where we're talking about police brutality, like I think it's it, this is where it really intersects with the housing and eviction crisis under COVID because that is where like the the this is the state's monopoly on violence. This is where, this is the, this is how eviction is enforced. It's yeah. enforced through the sheriffs. It's enforced through the police. So uh, I know that's kind of like a little bit, not 100% answering your question in terms of jurisdictional issues, but I do think that's where it's actually becoming most relevant. Um, counties basically, like the short answer is there's an overlaying, counties can pass protections, municipalities can pass protections. Um, the, the, the broadness of Governor Newsom's sort of quote-unquote eviction moratorium is quite broad in that sense. Yeah. So in other words, you're, you're at least you're not uh, governed by the weakest link. So it, you don't have to button up your county and city at the same level. But, you know, OK, so let's get back to, I guess, the legal protections at the state level. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, David Chu has a bill, 14, uh, AB 1436. Uh, this mm -hmm. would, I mean, this would really de facto be the same thing as the SF, but enforced at the state level, which is just any kind of COVID debt uh, up until, uh, I mean, basically it's during the time uh, of the crisis of the state of emergency might be the formal uh, definition. And uh, for uh, a few months afterwards, I'm trying to remember the details, uh, it, yeah. will, it will not be enforceable for eviction. 
so yeah, it's um yeah, that's that's hundred percent what it would do. Um, it would basically like remove that as a like just as a fair cause um, or grounds for uh, legal eviction in court, uh, COVID related hardship. Obviously, still the tenant has to you know provide evidence of COVID related hardship, which is something that we've been trying to like train and prepare tenants to do. Um, but, you know, they can't be evicted due to unpaid rent accrued during the state of emergency and for 90 days after the state of emergency has ended. So um, any that's the accrual period. So if you uh, accrued unpaid rent during as long as the state of emergency lasts in 90 days after that, that accrual of debt cannot a renter debt cannot be held against you as grounds for eviction after that. It provides a, it was 15 months, but thanks to landlord lobby, unfortunately, it's been shortened down to 12 at this point. After that state of emergency ends, it provides a 12 month grace period for tenants to repay missed rents without negative effects on their credit or like, mm. again, a eviction filing. And then in the meantime, it uh, allows tenants to enter basically a repayment plan with their landlord. Um, and it prevents landlords from overcharging tenants more than what the back rent was owed. So they can't charge interest, for example. Um, so yeah, like I, I would frame this as like, this is step one of many. This is like, this is just, this is the least we can do. That's not to diminish what assembly member Chu or supervisor Preston are trying to do at all. But like, it's like, it's like, it's like, this is step one, you know, in a much longer process where we have to deal with questions of, of debt where we have to deal with questions of long-term homelessness and what eviction will look like after the fact. But, yeah. you know, we have decided to support this bill because, like, it is honestly, at this point, the, the most promising chance we have in the state legislature of passing anything that's going to backstop this eviction crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's I guess, you know, kind of a, a pragmatic, moderate uh, intervention. Uh, I mean, I think even less than that, you can talk about, there are other places in the country right now where eviction courts are operating, uh, California still on freeze, uh, and it, you know, if, if nothing changes, will be on freeze until the end of the state of emergency, presumably would be sometime next year, who knows. Uh, but I mean, it wasn't even clear this was going to happen. It wasn't even clear that eviction courts are going to, at a state level, be put on hold, because uh, some counties did it, but not every county, and it really took... Uh, I'm not really sure this is this is like the, the the governing body of all the state courts finally made that decision because Gavin Newsom was too too afraid. Yeah, basically. And also that was almost reversed a few weeks ago, which yeah. put a crisis mode. So it's the California Judicial Council. The California Judicial Council uh, basically describes all these things or basically like decides all these things, uh, like the function of the courts. And, you know, there are, you know, the Supreme California Supreme Court participates in that. Um, California state legislators, state legislators who are, you know, accredited by the bar are also members of the Judicial Council. So if your legislator is a lawyer, it's very possible they might be a member of the California Judicial Council and they vote on these things. Mm. So effectively, I think the one thing that I want to put across that maybe a lot of folks understandably won't understand because it's very kind of arcane is that what materially stopped most legal, not extra legal, evictions in California was not Governor Newsom's moratorium. It was the California Judicial Council's order that they basically said, okay, you can file them, you can still file an eviction, but you, we're not going to process them in court. We are not going to, like, so, so that materially stopped the eviction machine because now they're, because they paused 
the legal proceedings, even if you file an eviction, if they're not going to hear the case because of everything that's going on with COVID, you cannot have a legal basis to physically throw someone out of their home during the pandemic. Yeah. Which is not necessarily like we, the courts, are going to stop processing these cases for our safety. But the consequence of that ended up being, you know, you can't, you know, you can't, you don't have the, like, like it, it, the consequence of that was stopping the machine as the eviction machine as it normally functions. Yeah. So that's, I think, a lot more import um, and a lot more effect than like Governor Newsom's order did on its own. That was really the material sort of like monkey wrench in the gears. And a few weeks ago, uh, I guess at this point, yeah, it was like a few, almost, it was about a month ago at this point. Uh, the Judicial Council was scheduling a vote to overturn, potentially overturn that and restart eviction proceedings. Was it, was that like part of the original? It's like, oh, we're going to freeze it for a few months and then just see how it's going, see if we want to change our minds. Or like, did someone like go in and say like, oh, you know, we really need, we made a mistake. We got to get evictions rolling again. I, I just don't, I don't know what, <laughs> what got that rolling. I'll be honest with you. I don't know either. I, I think also, I, I, I don't really have a smoking gun here. I think I would probably, I would probably not having a smoking gun or any sort of hot gas on this subject. I think I would probably lean towards saying that, um, you know, I think they might have been caught up in the same sense that's been coming from the top down that was already kind of, we're all recognizing is like folly uh, and already did recognize his follies. I think there was a period of time where despite the fact that we don't have a vaccine, despite the fact that we don't have a public health response, despite the fact like from the federal government on down, you know, um, there was kind of a weird phase about a month ago where I would say everyone was just trying to convince themselves and everyone around them that we could reopen and yeah, things. just power through, you know, it's it'll be fine. Yeah. I, I, if I had to, you know, again, I don't want to openly speculate too much because I don't really have a smoking gun on this, but if I had to speculate i would say that this is largely a part of that and, or rather yeah. this was a part of that and, and and keep in mind they were weighing two things and i'm forgetting what the other thing was uh which i feel bad about because a lot of my friends who uh are not housing or tenant advocates but criminal justice advocates i believe that during that vote period the judicial council did end up i think like some kind of bail hearings or other trial hearings they ended up reopening those mm. um in the decision um, so, uh, and again, I, I apologize for not remembering exactly what the details were of that, but they, at that point in that, in that vote, they were supposed to vote both on the tenant eviction proceedings and also some like stuff related to, um, uh, criminal cases and mass incarceration, um, and other things like that. And I think they ended up voting the wrong way uh, there. Uh, mm. I think they ended up restarting bail proceedings or something like that, uh, which is really unfortunate, especially seeing the outbreak we're seeing in san quentin which is just horrible and murderous but not to get sidetracked anyway yeah. i do think it was a consequence of that sort of weird hive mindset that we saw with our public officials where they're like all right we're getting back to normal like at the local level at the state level at the federal level which is clearly in our faces as we all a lot of us saw coming yeah it's, it's a it's a way to show your confidence i mean some people would say confidence is when you reopen your your restaurants and your movie theaters but you know to me my heart warms when i see the eviction courts you know reopening that, that everything's back to no, back to normal uh -huh. uh, yeah exactly but they ended up not doing that um we really to be honest like we really only had like about 24 to 36 hours notice 
um, that they were even going to hold this vote to restart the eviction process in court. Um, but luckily, I think we managed to mobilize enough people and spam everybody and call everybody. And I, I want to thank anybody listening to this who did call, because I know some of you who are listeners to Mark's podcast did really pitch in a lot, and I, I'm eternally grateful. Um, but we managed to stop that, where uh, the, the California Supreme uh, Court Justice, um, Tani Cantil Sakaye, basically was like, okay, we're suspending this vote. We're not having this vote. Um, on the auction proceedings, which effectively means that we are back and still in the status quo where uh, the Judicial Council uh, has determined the courts will not process eviction cases until 90 days after the state of emergency has expired. And and we, we are, who I mean, who even knows if there will be any kind of reopening, but ideally they look at the message that don't make this part of the reopening uh, next time you're doing it uh, in, you know, until things really are past the state of emergency. Or even then, I wouldn't complain if, you know. Uh, but, uh, okay, so, okay, we, we talked about local, statewide. I mean, at the federal level, uh, due to the American federal, you know, federalism, uh, not a whole lot of interventions are really at the, you know, uh, the federal level in the United States. And, I mean, outside of, uh, you know, outside of kind of an ambitious proposal by Ilhan Omar to uh, cancel rent at a federal level, was there really any interventions worth noting at the federal level that helped anybody? Um, well, I mean, other, other than paying people and like, you know, putting money in people's pockets and un, unemployment insurance, obviously. But, you know, anything that actually at the tenant level, I guess. No, not really. I mean, um, I do want to I, I do want to add a small asterisk in that, like, I know that there's a proposal that came out a couple days from Senator um, Kamala Harris, and I, I haven't, like, we have said it together, but also, like, I haven't really uh, had the time to evaluate that or read it yet. Mm. So maybe something will come out of that or not. So I do want to acknowledge that that's out there. Um, but aside from Senator Harris's proposal, no. And, like, you know, like, we were talking, one thing we were talking about was, uh, or everyone was talking about was the HEROES Act, right? Um, yeah, it was HEROES. Oh, wait, no, it was Heroes is the one that the Democrats were proposed. I always confuse it with the other one. It was CARES, and I, uh, I, I don't know. It's anything, any named legislation, I, I, I zone out. Yeah, so Heroes was supposed to be, uh, CARES was what passed bipartisanly or whatever, but um, uh, Heroes was the one that was supposed to be the sort of um, Democratic Party uh, throwing down the gauntlet and putting forward their agenda for recovery. Um, to uh, to the Republicans, knowing that it would probably be voted down in the Senate or vetoed mm. by the president. Um, but even Heroes had some very glaring flaws that they clearly hadn't learned or had chosen not to learn from uh, um, Congresswoman Omar's Red Mortgage Cancellation Act, which was great, amazing. Um, which was that, you know, they were, they had created a little bit of mortgage relief, a little bit yeah. of mortgage relief, but also the way that they had structured mortgage relief wouldn't really even help the, you know, mom and pop landlords or whatever. Like it would mostly uh, help uh, commercial landlords or residential landlords who were big enough to be able to like deal with the Fed and file a lot of like very Byzantine paperwork. Um, and it didn't really, aside from, it might have been, I believe, and I could be wrong here, full disclaimer, I believe it might have included something like towards an eviction moratorium, but not really. Um, but it didn't go anywhere, anywhere close to where uh, Ilhan Omar's Rent and Mortgage Cancellation Act did. 
it's certainly like you know because not only did um not only did Ilhan Omar's rent mortgage cancellation act actually um you know cancel like attempt to cancel rents and rents and mortgages in a meaningful way it was also reinvesting in affordable housing money it was reinvesting in money to combat homelessness like it was a very comprehensive forward-thinking bill um also meant to like readdress indebtedness and everything and I, I don't even think that like the heroes act included anything that really gestured towards tenants it was just a fig leaf of a modicum re of relief towards like landowners yeah but even towards like for smaller landowners who can't really navigate a byzantine federal system it wouldn't even have helped them that so yeah, I mean, you yeah. want the right, the right messaging, but you know, if it is actually you know helps people, you know, it's 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 surprising. I, mean, I feel like the, the cynical side of me at least makes it. Uh, of course, the feds are going to neglect renters, but I thought they were going to do something at least pandering to homeowners. But you know, they couldn't even get that together, which is just kind of you know even surprising to me. Uh, I mean, I think yeah. I'm uh, looking forward to like I guess future vision. Uh, you know, Biden and Sanders got together to write a homeowner renters bill of rights thing. Uh, and or that's like part of the whole, you know, there's there's some sort of uh, and, you know, it's mostly helping homeowners. But, you know, that's what you get. You know, that's 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 federal politics in 2020. Uh, OK, but so we're talking a lot about kind of specific uh, specific interventions at different levels. I think talking bigger picture, I think a question is, you know, what is the what is the overall plan here to intervene? And I think you can say on one level you know, there's there's different levels of how good and, you know, just it is to just how you know, efficacious and you're going to just make it work in the short term. I think, you know, I think we all agree uh, in this crisis, the most just thing to do is to say, oh, sorry, you know, landlords, uh, you know, someone's got to take the pain here. It's going to be you. You know, we're going to cancel rent. Uh, you know, that's that's, you know, one side of just the correct but politically difficult to happen, whether this is between just the political blocks that govern our systems and the fact that we reify the contracts clause uh, so much and takings clause. It just makes it, you know, I guess, legally challenging to do these things, whereas the police power mm -hmm. can stop people from working. And that's no big deal. Uh, to, right. Yeah. To the other end, you know, if, if you know, canceling rents one end, the other end is uh, going to be like, oh, yeah, let's just, you know, make a lot of money and we'll just kind of subsidize landlords, just have good pass through. You know, you can say we're not really doing either. But, you know, as far as both ends, you at least would say, you know, creating a lot of money and subsidizing landlords is going to be effective. And I just like wonder at every level, you know, do you think... Do you think you need like a two-pronged attack of like having both, you know, fighting for the right thing, which is I think going to be difficult to make happen in enough time to help renters? On the other hand, just okay, it grosses me out to have landlord subsidies, but if it keeps people housed, you know, I'll, I'll hold my nose. I'm just kind of wondering what you think. Oh, about totally. I mean, it's our responsibility to have to hold all those contradictions um, in what we do, but also like, you know, re recognize, recognize the like issues of quote unquote pragmatism, but also not lose sight of the larger goal. And I think that like part of the way that we've managed to uh, hold all of those realities at once so far is like talking about not just canceling rent, but canceling mortgages. And I, one thing that I want to get into about canceling rent and canceling mortgages, it's not only that like the two together are a very popular demand 
you know, according to data for progress, like 75% of Californians across the political spectrum support canceling rent and canceling mortgages for the duration of the COVID pandemic. So we know that this is a very, very popular bipartisan, by ideological, whatever demand that people like just think is common sense during this pandemic. Um, regardless of whether our state legislature is responding to that or not, which they absolutely aren't. But also, like, part of the reason that, and that is where cancel mortgages has come in. Like, you know, it's not like tenant organizers. Tenant organizers understand predatory land ownership structures more than anybody. Like, we understand the inherent power imbalance and class imbalance of the relationship between someone who rents and someone who is renting to them. Like, we, we see that more than anybody does. But also, like, we have to keep in mind, for example, that you know, and this is where cancel mortgages kind of comes in, is that if you let smaller landlords fail, and again, this also goes back into other discussions where you've seen Wall Street, you know, co-opt the interests or the rhetoric of the mom and pop landlord to try to get their interests across when it's quashing rent control laws, right? Like, you know, that that's also another very fraught discussion that we've had to deal with all the time, like the co-option of the mom and pop landlord. But also what we recognize is a lot of us, including Tenants Together, who came, like Tenants Together was formed after the 2008 foreclosure crisis. We also recognize that, you know, if we don't cancel mortgages for smaller landowners and smaller property owners, as much as we may have very serious power and about a structural, a structurally oppositional relationship to them and many other in the rest of the time, um, if they, if we, if they go under, we've already seen what will happen, what happened in 2008. And we're rightfully concerned that'll happen again. Yeah. Which is that if you basically allow these small landlords to default, if you allow these home, like uh, underwater homeowners or whatever, like who are dealing with like, you know, predatory mortgages, subprime mortgages, you know, especially people in uh, communities of color that may still have some home ownership rate after 2008 or whatever. If you allow these folks to go under, we know that what you'll see is something even worse you will see Wall Street come in, you will see them acquire these properties and you will see them turn into even more predatory rentals. And we're still organizing with tenants who are living in single family home or other rentals that Wall Street bought after 2008, over 10 years ago, that have like black widow spider infestations, thousand dollar overnight rent increases. Like we know what happens when Wall Street becomes your landlord and it is the most nightmare situation we can possibly deal with. And what we're worried about now um, in this depression, like, is that on steroids, right? And so that is where you do have to bring in things like mortgage relief and, can, uh, you know, and canceling mortgages, not just canceling rents. Um, and so like that, we've definitely incorporated that into our demand. But like, like you said, like, we understand the contradictions and the issues there. But right now, like the, 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 the worst case scenario is so much is so stark. Yeah, I think we have to like kind of put that aside and incorporate that. So it is like, it is kind of it, it's straddling a lot of contradictions because canceling rent and canceling mortgages is both something that if you talk to anybody who's actually a state legislature and state legislator in California is an impossible demand. And then when you go and talk to 75 percent of all Californians is an enormously shared demand, yeah. you know, like we, we are embracing a lot of contradictions there, but also just in the contradictions of the relationship between the landlord and the tenant. We also understand that we do at this point, things are so dire. We, we do have to bring these demands together and try to stabilize uh, smaller property owners 
um, who actually do depend on their uh, rental income to pay their mortgage. Otherwise, we will see more predatory behavior from the bigger actors. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I think I want to make very sure of, which is, you know, uh, a temptation is to avoid putting on my accelerationist hat during this and saying like, oh, yeah, things are going to get worse before they get better. Uh, Because, you know, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, I'd say, you know, everything from uh, people's instabilities. But I think in this case, it is, you know, the uh, consolidation of land owning in, you know, these private equity orgs. On one hand, there are more, you know, you could say, oh, there's a silver lining. These are much better villains. You know, in the future, we're going to take them all down at once. But you don't want to play with fire like that. Uh, I I think, you know, and that is kind of, you know, I mean, this is something, you know, that, you know, uh, we've talked about in the past in this this show. But there's a a lot of things you, you lose on both ends from the mom and pop to the big Wall Street interest you know, the mom and pops can, you know, just like small biz, they can be absolute psychos. You know, they can be they can be some of the oh, totally. yeah the, the the people least likely to, to file uh, regulation. And, you know, insofar as they're awful, they also, uh, you know, just are extremely photogenic in the eyes of a politician's eyes, which is baffling. But it's an unfortunate truth, you know. I, I mean, I, I would, I feel like I don't know how to resolve this, uh, this contradiction, but uh, I, I think, and also, it, like, if you look at this in general, there's kind of two levels of how you see evictions going ahead. Insofar as we're, you're, we're hitting, we're hitting an economic, you know, crisis that's going to become a big recession. I see no path forward of everyone actually steering us out of this. One is, if you are the, the big, big, big landlords, I think, fortunately, unfortunately. They're smart enough to know that if you take all of your tenants because they can't pay their bills, you evict most of them. And it's like, well, I'm going to find new people <laughs> to rent it out. It's like, who, where are these new people? They don't, they don't exist. You know, you're going to be waiting. And in the end, you evicted people for no reason. If it is one of these big corporate you know, outfits, I think they are smart enough to not make that mistake. Whereas I think the mom and pops... A lot of them might be so idiotic that they find this big moral issue, like, oh, this, I hate my tenant. They don't pay the rent. And they, you know, a victim out of spite more than anything, instead of some, like, spreadsheet, you know, telling them they should or shouldn't. And I don't know if that's worth dwelling on too much, but I do, in some sense, it tells me that in evictions in this crisis, mom and pops are perhaps the most dangerous. At least that's my, that's my read. I've always tried to... I mean, the first thing I'll say is that the major, a lot of the our state legislators are themselves mom and pop landlords. Yeah, we've looked into this organization. I know Cal Matters has looked into this as well as journalists. It's like a third of them. A lot of them. Yeah, yeah, something like a third of them actually are themselves owners of ten or fewer properties, um, which I believe was the the cutoff. I don't want to like I, I resist easy conclusions there because there's a lot of ways you can argue. For example, mom and pop landlords might be less likely to know uh, or uh, know the laws yeah. that govern them. But also, uh, bigger landlords are have you know uh, property management companies uh, and contractors and lawyers, etc., who will know the laws, but also know the best way to systematically skirt them. Sure. If you're if you are coming to somebody with a mold, like let's say a, a mold complaint or a habitability or quality of life complaint, it's possible that you could get a quicker response 
um, from a institutional landlord with a property management company and professional services available. Whereas a mom and pop landlord might not know how to deal with that, might react hostilely towards you. But also we've seen with these Wall Street landlords that they will literally like let black widow spiders like nest in your house that you're renting. Because like they know that if you complain to Blackstone or whatever about it, that no one's going to answer you and nobody gives a shit. Where all, what are you going to do? Me? Yeah. You know, so like all of these things like there are I've always like, I've had a lot of debates or not debates but back and forth about people about this like on, on the the mom and pop versus the institutional landlord and it really differs it really it really does it's really context there are disadvantages and advantages to both because you can have um you know ignorant exploitation um uh, ignorance and exploitation like from like a smaller landlord uh but it also just like frustration and not really being able to handle uh dealing with a tenant legally but you can also have an incredibly professionalized almost mechanized machine of exploitation on the large landlord landlord level and so i don't have a definitive answer to that i think the way that i would kind of try to reconceptualize this in terms of what's going on now is more related to the way that the renter market and renter power has become segmented and what i mean by this is one thing that's really struck me and i'm really not trying to distract from the question oh, but yeah. this really has this really has struck me a lot is that you will see that, you know, renters who are closer to paying market rate or have more bargaining power. And you're seeing articles about this too. Like I'm seeing this play out in press coverage and it's two seemingly very contradictory narratives, but I think they are related to each other. Um, where folks who are paying closer to market rate, um, paying, uh, you know, they are finding that they're now in a renter's market, either because people are like moving, some people are moving home in like sort of the like more white collar urban professional milieu, which I also come from, um, or not come from, which I am in now, I didn't come from that. But like, you know, you see that where it's like people are, some people are actually finding a renter's market. And I, I've heard even anecdotal stories of people who are like, you know, urban working, like work, working professionals, um, even in San Francisco being like, oh yeah, I'm going to move back in with my parents and I'm going to come back to San Francisco because there's going to be a favorable renter's market. And there's like stories coming out in the press where people are like, oh, like, you know, I rent this, you know, fair, like relatively like higher rent, relatively higher rent. Again, I'm not saying luxury or, or elite. I'm just saying like, you know, uh, relatively higher rent market rate apartment. And I've been able to play hardball with my landlord and really negotiate things down. And that's great. I'm very happy for them. Anything that anything that's challenging the landlord-tenant relationship in favor of the tenant, I am 100% for you. But also, like, as a tenant organizer, like, what I see is even, like, it's, like, a huge, like, thing where, like, everybody who's um, even, like, paying, quote-unquote, whatever, like, a market rent or a non-regulated rent, rather, that might be on the lower side, people who are lower income, like they are more afraid than they've ever been. Yeah. And so it seems like contradictory stories where people are like, how do we see like, you know, someone saying like, oh, now I'm in a renter's market because people are leaving um, because things are slowing down because my landlord, people are losing their income. So my landlord needs my income. So I'm more valuable. Um, but we're seeing that play across not even class lines because like anyone who works for a wage is in the working class and depends on a wage for to survive is in the working class. But within that, you are seeing like real stratification between like 
a middle to upper, not upper top tier, but like a middle to upper tier of the housing market where people are like, oh, I'm experiencing a renter's market. I'm bargaining with my landlord. Like I'm getting my rent down. Yeah. I'm negotiating. And then other people who are like, I am terrified like that I am going to be like, my neighbor was locked out of their home. They just threw his shit on the street. And it's very racialized. It's very income specific. But I think the reason that I bring this up is because like there are sometimes, sometimes these these phenomena can seem contradictory just as much as like the mom and pop landlords or the institutional landlord. But we really do have to like perceive all of this as one um, like race and class system um, where people are having very, very different experiences that seem contradictory, but really are all related. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, to talk about the different dynamics, I think I'm trying to think of what the right work should be because it shouldn't be lucky, but I think there are people who like, you know, it's when you have protections, whether it be rent stabilization uh, in cities that have them, but even down in Santa Clara County, the places where they don't, you can still have a good fit where you're, you know, more fortunate than, you know, oh, this is, this is less than it probably could be. And every time you have kind of a fortunate situation like that, you kind of know like any change, uh, you know, or any excuse to kind of, you know, rat you out, you know, is 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 it going to work out pretty badly for you? And I think any sort of crisis is like, oh, is this finally going to be what it takes for my landlord to kick me out and bring it back to market rate rents? You know, I like all these like, yeah, yeah. I mean, even in like Palo Alto, you hear like people say like, Oh, people inherit a property where their parents used to give them a good rate. It's like, well, then we have to get rid of these, you know, unproductive liabilities and, you know, get our just re- rewards. You know, I think across the scale, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard to say any sort of correction, which I am not even that optimistic that we're going to see a good correction in a reasonable term for the high end of what market rate rents are any place. But, you know, it yeah. certainly doesn't solve their problem. It's not also because, like, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I think you and I would probably both agree that, like, because it's it's a boom and bust based process that the uh, the the private market for housing construction is going to take a huge hit, just like it did in two thousand eight, possibly a bigger one, right? Yeah. The, the 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 building boom, I think, is probably pretty much dead because of this depression, and of course, because of a lack of federal funding in affordable housing and subsidized housing and public housing and social housing or whatever, like we all advocate for or argue about, like that's also dead in so far as, you know, a lot of affordable housing funding on the municipal level is connected to private market rate development, right? And fee outs and all that. I, I, I am, I, I'm inching very close to the land use buzzer because I think... <laughs> Sorry, land use, but what I mean is, what I mean to say by all of that is like we are dealing with like an enormous... Like we're we're dealing with our like sort of uh, our, our Rube Goldberg machine uh, that we've constructed for ourselves, whether it comes to land use or tenants' rights, is like all kind of really falling apart, you know? Yeah. And the only way we can really deal with that is to like again, like it it sounds trite, but like we have to organize collectively because I'm not really sure what other avenue we have. I yeah. think. I don't. I, I don't see any way around it besides a lot of us getting very loud and very angry together. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I think big, big picture. You know, the future of renter heaven or renter hell. Uh, I mean, I think one version of hell, which I'd say is actually we're always in danger going towards, which is like the neoliberal version of hell, which I can imagine. We're already seeing, like, to my mind, 
anytime you hear the word credit rating, my, you know, I just, I just you know, want to die inside. Uh, but I, I absolutely believe we're going to see something in which every kind of crisis is brought upon uh, an underclass to incur more weird debt that they have to live through their entire life and are always you know, whittling away their school lunch debt to their rent debt to this weird you know, uh, you know, pandemic debt that's like hanging under their head like a noose and you're just going to squeeze them for them every day until they die. And I think that is, if unless you fight against it, I think that's a world we're sliding into. Uh, is this a, if this was meant to be a segue into, I want to say, SB 1410. <laughs> I, uh, it wasn't meant to be, but talk about that. Um, so uh, I guess I have to explain this with tenants together and 45 member organizations have no official opinion on SB 1410. And what I will be saying is my opinion as myself, John C. Singh, and mine alone. Um, but uh, SB 1410 is uh, from, uh, I believe, Senators Atkins and pro time Atkins and Senator Bradford. Um, it is basically the state. Democratic majority, not a Democratic, state Senate, uh, state legislature's attempt to uh, tackle the cancel rent question um, by half measures. Yeah. The most difficult thing I could possibly say about that. And the reason that, like, what you just said, Mark, kind of brought me to thinking about that bill was precisely because it turns renter debt into uh, tradable credits. Oh, that's lovely. Tax credits. Um, so effectively the way, and again, a lot of the proposal, it's all moving parts. It could change in a lot of different ways, but my, uh, again, me just speaking as me, uh, my understanding of the legislation is that it will effectively, okay, if you're a renter who cannot pay, which most renters are not going to be able to pay. Most renters in California do not magically have, uh, six to 12 months of rent, uh, saved up that they could pay or else they would be paying it now. And also like even when the pandemic ends, if there are no jobs for them to gain, they cannot even begin to pay that rent back in the first place. Yeah. So that is, and that's when I'm like, that's where the debt crisis comes in. Like, you know, we could also have a long-term, if we don't have a homelessness crisis from 28 million Americans being evicted, we could also have a long-term debt crisis where all of this, the things like student debt and medical debt and all the things that Americans are already suffering from, where we add renter debt onto that pile of, of, of horribleness. Uh, I was going to swear, but I stopped myself. So uh, this bill, this bill would effectively uh, take the liability between the renter and the landlord, um, put in the state of California in a sort of an intermediary where the renter's debt becomes a tax credit, oblig a tax credit that the landlord can file with the state. Which seems fine enough. Does it? I guess the state becomes kind of an intermediary in that private transaction. And forgive me, I'm about to put like I, for full disclosure, before I worked in tenants' rights, my first job out of college was working uh, data management with like hedge fund like derivatives, particularly nice. housing and mortgage-backed securities and things. That's why I have a very strong opinion on this stuff as my as a tenant organizer. But like, uh, uh it creates so the state becomes kind of an intermediary in that debt obligation between the, the debt contract between the the renter who has not been able to pay their rent and the landlord and so the state kind of steps in and how they kind of uh, compensate the landlord is through a tax credit that they give the landlord 
uh, that is uh, related to the obligation or the debt that the tenant has to repay in missed rent. <clears throat> and the tenant, I believe it's supposed to, I could be wrong about this piece, but my understanding is the tenant is like to repay the state um, directly. So instead of like entering in a private contract with the landlord. So, so far, okay. But the landlord can uh, take their, you know, state with the state acting of California acting as an intermediary. The state can take, the, the landlord can take that uh, debt obligation that they are owed and then sell that tax credit, which basically the tax credit from the state, like they can sell the debt obligation that is owed to them privately as the landlord uh, to a second or third party on a secondary market. Is this that a is tax a credit on the on the landlord's state income? I, I, what's that even a tax credit on? I'm not a hundred percent sure. You know, yeah. I will have to. Have, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure how like the full extent of that like obligation works, like what the tax credit is on. Yeah. Um, but they can file for this, but also the landlord can sell that obligation that the state is becoming, it's, it's the obligation between them and the tenant, the state is becoming an intermediary on through this legislation. But they can still take that obligation that still has to be compensated by rent and debt and sell that on to any third party, as I understand it. Yeah. And any third party, I mean, you could just have, like, it could become a situation where there's just, like, you know, your penny any like, minor debt collector, like, predatory payday loan type agencies taking that on. You could see it becoming some sort of, I don't know, bizarre boutique financial product uh, that Wall Street engages in, much like mortgage-backed securities. I mean, the whole gamut is, like, once you, in once you introduce, like, a uh, completely, like, disinvested, no-skin-in-the-game uh, investor or financial party into this debt obligation, I mean, the sky's really the limit. This, and sounds, this like, sounds like innovation to me. This sounds This sounds beautiful. It's innovation, totally. I know, right? Uh, it's, it's very like it's been really funny because, like, I, I as you probably know, uh, most uh, most tenant organizers don't have a finance background. Uh, so, like, usually, when I try to explain this to like reporters or colleagues and stuff, they're like incredibly horrified, <laughs> which I totally understand. Um, but it's very that that is the part that personally, as me again, not speaking on behalf of. Uh, the organization I work for, which has no official position on Senator Bradford and Atkins legislation, uh, that part uh, keeps me up. Itself. On one hand, like I, I don't even know, like okay, so the incentives this introduces as weird side effects are going to be like extremely strange. I can't even get my head around it. But co the core idea, what does this solve? The core idea is solves the kind of liquidity of getting more credit for obtaining rent as opposed to other stuff during a, it's it's it seems unclear what the core issue is and I, I think if there's one central dictum is when you're dealing with positional goods and this tends to be everything from health care to school to housing is, is a big one if you throw more credit at it you don't actually mm -hmm. solve stuff it just makes people bid it up higher and get more into debt so i just like every single part of this just makes it sound like it's you know to me it's going to just make everyone's lives worse and just have this weird financialized uh, substratum to kind of facilitate that. I, I just don't, I don't see this ever making the world better in any way. No. I think you absolutely nailed it. I think you just uh, articulated two things that are really critical. 
One, this is attempting to solve the political problem, the political demand of canceling rent and canceling mortgages, or not even mortgages. It's attempting to solve the political demand and the clear material need uh, to cancel rent. Uh, but what it really is doing is uh, just, like you said, like creating an, uh, another economic demand and opportunity for credit. Yeah. And that, and, and that really, like, decouples, like, one of the things that, like, I've always kind of tried to uh, impress upon people is that, you know, long-term renter indebtedness, even assuming that people don't get evicted, which is a big if, but even if people don't get evicted, then creating like all of this debt for them is something that's going to haunt them and haunt the economy for the rest of their lives. And so like this proposal is almost like a, it's a, a devilishly clever way of like basically saying like, oh, this is how we address the political issue um, and the material issue of renter debt, but also turn it into a new credit opportunity uh, and a new debt opportunity that will juice our economy and compensate yeah. that these people are in enormous amounts of debt that they cannot get out of for years to come. Um, and so cannot like directly contribute to the economy as consumers. Like it, it's, yeah, it, it's it's almost ingenious, but I, I don't think I would necessarily call it ingenious. I mean, um, it's it's Thanksgiving for for debt farmers, you know, people who are gonna you know uh, gonna you know suck away people's uh, obligations. I mean, uh, you know, in general, everyone on the earth, you know, we're all born into debt. We need to pay for a roof over our head every every year of our life. But now, you know, now we make it a nice financial asset. It's, it's great. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the idea, like, uh, honestly, like, I, I, the, after 2008, like, it really just like, kind of demonstrates that we've learned nothing, including in, like, a California, like, Democratic supermajority government or whatever, where we're supposedly lucky. Like, I mean, you're just creating an obvious opportunity to uh, collateralize renter debt, just like we collateralized mortgage debt, like, 15 years ago. And then also, like, one of the things that came out like when this bill proposal was originally like before we had text, but when we still had like, you know, a uh, uh, commentary on it from its proponents from folks like Senator Atkins and Senator Bradford, which I don't want to like throw, like put it just on them, but you know, like I what they, they're writing a wave of some really awful ideology. They're the proponents. But one of the things that really struck me when this original proposal came out before the actual text of the proposal came out was them saying like, listen, we know that renters are having a very hard time and we think this proposal strikes the balance because like we also don't want renters to have a free ride. And if you think that any renter in California is having a free ride right now, if that is your overriding concern, if that is guiding your uh, crafting of legislation is that like these renters in California have had it too good for too long in this pandemic, in this depression, like I don't even know where to begin to deal with that. These these lucky duckies, you know. Let's let's finally uh, you know take them off their high high hat. You know, it's it's. it's I about, know. Yeah. So okay. So I think that's a kind of a depiction of you know renter hell. I think is that renter heaven. Renter like I like renter purgatory to me is something more like you know something more like an MMT. You know, if we just kind of everyone wakes up and their their wallets you know always produce enough free money every every month that's you know that's pretty good you pay your landlord but in the end there's still certain problems here at the very least it does not govern the fact who owns the assets and i think you know the tr the actual real underlayer of the renter versus you know landlord the landless versus landed 
uh, aspect is just kind of who owns what, under what conditions. And I think just kind of producing more money and making it flow is certainly not going to solve that, at least by itself. Uh, no. It could, it could get you away there. I certainly would not turn my nose down at something like a UBI in the short term to just make sure renters have money. But the ultimate issue, renter heaven, is taking away the property balance of the fact that people end up landless in the first place because that's kind of the core issue that uh, that creates this. Right. And like also it's like, I mean, we see this even, you know, I mean, people know like uh, uh, Tenants Together, well, Tenants Together, the organization that I work for is neither a Marxist nor a Georgist organization. Uh, I am a Marxist. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, but, but like also like even then, like you got to like everything we're fighting is on the it's on the premise of this imbalance, like this natural imbalance between the renter and the landlord. Yeah, of course. Like that's that that the the innate power imbalance is where all tenant organizing begins. But it also like creates like you know the, that's why tenant empowerment has broad, broader implications for all these other intersectional issues, whether it's like labor rights or environmental justice or criminal justice or like you know police brutality or you know, racism and income inequality and all these things. But yeah, I mean, I, I think we're living where we are kind of in the cool zone. Like we're definitely in the cool zone. I mean, we're living in a time where like anything could happen and like every day is waiting for another shoe to drop. Yeah. Right. And we could totally not have the institutional preparation or the organizational preparation as organizers, as people on the left, as tenants, like we could crap out, but we could also like you know see inspiring moments and rise to the occasion. Like I, I can't really predict what's going to happen. I think that it's my responsibility and our responsibility to make sure that we're prepared for the worst case scenario. But effectively, what we're all doing right now during COVID is is everything that we were doing before, but just kind of on overdrive, yeah. right? Because the thing is, like, it's just all of this is because this epidemic is like this pandemic is laying bare all of the inequities that we already had. It just lays bare all of the problems that we already knew were happening, but on, on an accelerated timeline where like every renter in California, every renter in the United States needs to know their rights. They need to be mobilized. They need to be empowered to in a socially distanced way, like set up tenant associations. They need to be able to connect with local organizations. We need to provide the local infrastructure and to like, you know, support them and then also unify to provide the state level legislative like pressure to support them like we are at the end of the day like doing what we knew we had to do before but just trying to do it faster and harder yeah it's not it's not the most ideal time for organizing but it's never been more necessary and people are people are making it happen i think you know just in general to talk about you know, it's like we instead of depending upon our, you know, different electoral systems and our courts, you know, at the, at the end of the day, power structure is, you know, really what drives this. And you look 100 years ago or more, it was far more common to see actual rent strikes emerge during crises. It just almost, you know, it became uh, just the, the, the natural end effect uh and it's, it's, you know, right now, unfortunately, there's not the level of organization you see at every level. 
to make that happen. I'm just kind of, you know, what what do you say in your mind if you had to kind of make your realistic but ambitious plan of, you know, how renter power builds up and how we could see something that actually has a real countervailing force uh, for, for a tenant voice at, at, at the levels that it matters? I'm really glad you asked that question because at the end of the day, like the renters movement structurally, I mean, the labor movement in the United States has taken an enormous hit in your lifetime and my lifetime over the past like 30, 40 years, yeah. right? But they still have uh, infrastructure like the uh, NLRB, like the National Labor Relations Board, where there are, you know, if you decide to go through the process of organizing for a union, declaring union election, et cetera, like in your workplace, there are rules and regulations uh, that do protect you to some limited degree. Yeah. Um, in forming that union, right? But in the tenant movement, we don't have that. If you form a tenant organization in your building, a tenant association or a tenant union, like you can be evicted in retaliation for that, including in California, which has like, and, and that's why like, you know, Tenants Together, like we worked on a right to organize bill, um, SB 529 last year with Senator Durazo, and it, it failed by one vote, unfortunately, despite getting a majority of votes in the state Senate. But like, you know, it failed then. Um, yeah. And this basically even starting to establish the right to organize. And we're going to keep pushing on that because if you don't establish the right to organize, then like nothing that comes from everything that comes from that is grounds for retaliation from a landlord. So um, we're coming from a place where we are actually as far behind as, as far behind in the setback in the labor movement ex has experienced. And we are related movements and we work with each other. The tenant movement is even further beyond that in terms of like behind that in terms of like even the rights that you have to organize as a renter. So when it comes to, I am very heartened and happy that the idea of the rent strike is coming back in the popular consciousness because the rent strike is something that has is like the rent strike is actually as, as American as apple pie, even if people don't realize that it is. It is actually like a huge part of our history. And it's especially part of the history of American renters, like since the tenement movement, since, you know, like the first waves of immigrants, uh, European or otherwise, like came over to the United States. Like, you know, like the, the, the rent strike was a tactic that was particularly honed with black tenants and black communities in Harlem, with socialists, with communists, with um, labor organizers, you know, it is a very time honored tactic. Um, and because of the, the setbacks that we've all experienced as the broader left, I think because of McCarthyism, because of all these other things I won't get into, uh, it has kind of uh, faded from memory as something that really is a fundamentally uh, American tactic, uh, or not a fundamentally American tactic, but a fundamental tactic of tenants that like has like kind of faded from memory rather yeah but a precedent in american history and as a precedent in american working class history and tenant history and labor history so uh what i would say about that and i want to be careful about it because there have been i think in my opinion there have been a lot of calls like you know we have social media we have twitter now so like anybody can go on twitter and be like i'd call for a rent strike and i kind of compare that to uh michael scott in the office when he like shouts in the middle of the office, like I declare bankruptcy. Like that doesn't actually mean that he's declaring bankruptcy. And I don't blame people for that. I think it's like not really 
we have we are so behind on having the institutional infrastructure to do like mass labor strikes let alone rent strikes that i understand why people think like misunderstand what a rent strike is if you get 100 retweets they don't have to honor your rent strike yeah, yeah exactly but like also it's like a rent strike is a collective action much much like a labor strike is if you're working, you can't just withhold your own wages as an individual and say, I'm on strike, Yeah, right? That's a collective action that you do through deliberation, preparation, um, organizing. And um, what's happening, I think that's unfortunate, and I do want to, I don't want to, I want to gently push back against that, not to discourage people, but, you know, if you are individually unable to pay your rent, you're not on a rent strike and declaring you're on a rent strike isn't necessarily going to help you because like a rent strike like a labor strike is a collective action so where rent strikes have happened before covid it's people making a collective demand which they have some leeway in the california penal code in california which we're not going to get into but people say like listen you know there's black mold there's black widow spiders whatever you know like there is a serious problem we are holding our rent in escrow, but collectively as a tenant association, we have organized together, we, are sp- we have spoken together, we have spoken to like organizations who are willing to like guide us through this, uh, ideally. But, but basically they're saying, like, we have collectively decided to withhold our rent until you remedy the specific situation and meet our demands. And I think uh, that is how a rent strike works. Um, I think that like sometimes there's been a lot of confusion. I'm not blaming anybody about uh, what a rent strike is because some folks have been unintentionally led to think that like if I am individually not paying my rent, that that means that I'm on a rent strike if I just say that I am and that's not what it is. And uh, I'm saying that because that could be dangerous. Yeah. Because if you're on, if you're a tenant in California or anywhere else in the United States and you're on your own, and you're taking action on your own and not collectively, then the like the retaliation against you can be very severe. And it's like it can be severe for workers, but again, like we're like even tenants associations and tenant unions, which is like you have to form to act collectively. Even then, they don't have like you know the kind of protections. Like they don't have a national tenant relations board to adjudicate those situations. So like the, what you can do is like if, if you do, I don't want to say like don't go on rent strike ever. Right. But what I want to say is like what a rent strike is, is a very serious thing. It's something you have to engage in knowing your rights, having engaged with your neighbors, being able to engage in something collectively and like moving forward collectively, like and having all of that solidified. And, and at the end of the day, like that's why Tenants Together exists. That's why I do what I do is like. I, I want every Californian, every American, every every person to know how to organize a tenants association, how to have those meetings, how to prevent like egregious things like lockouts, but like also how to like organize their block, organize your building, organize your block, organize your community, and like have strength in numbers. Yeah. Because that you have that, you can engage in a rent strike. But like you being by yourself is not being on a rent strike. And I think since COVID, because there's so many people who are just unable to pay, that some of the rhetoric and the language around that has become very confusing. And the last thing that like I want to do as a renter's rights like organizer is to put people in a situation where they're going it alone. 
because you can't go and look. Yeah. I mean, a, a labor strike and a rent strike, in a lot of ways, they're an active war, and you can't just, you know, try to take it on yourself. And I mean, the same way, there's, you know, this is a pre-NLRB age. And before that, for, for, you know, flashback several decades before, when people went on strikes, it was not a recognized, honored thing. It was an act of war, and they, they got massacred uh, a lot of the times. And, you know, you, you have to know that's the that's the stakes you're against. And I think, you know, you talk about, like, you know, what is the runner power? You know, I think it's, you know, dealing with crises when you have kind of a unified struggle uh, in, a, in a special moment is key, but you also need the infrastructure. And unfortunately, we're still building that infrastructure. And I think it's it's a challenge, too, because, I mean, I think even though we do have a unified uh, a unified struggle as far as COVID goes, there are so many different things that different renters face. We have different landlords. We have different jurisdictions which have different rules that protect us in different ways. A lot of us have terms and leases that come due at different times. You know, it's 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 very hard. You know, I think to you know, it's not one shop. You know, it's very hard to kind of really unify everyone's struggle together. But you know, it's 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 an open question how we're going to get from here to there uh, anytime soon. But I, I'm, I'm, I think we have to be prepared and just be nimble and ready. I don't know what else to kind of keep on our top of heads, but. Well, we have to have solidarity too. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, we do have, we do have, we have some sub markets and again, like no one is lucky. No one in the position of a renter is lucky or privileged here compared to the landlord. But even like, you know, like we see these like tale of two cities situations where someone may be able to negotiate with their landlord because they can say, hey, I'll leave and go somewhere else. And then we have a bunch of people who absolutely can't do that. And so if we don't exercise solidarity with one another as renters in this moment, like then like we're not gonna be able to move forward. Just like people need to like move, exercise solidarity with themselves as workers. I mean, this is an incredibly dire situation for a lot of people. Yeah. 20 Americans becoming homeless is like just like I mean that's an immediate danger of becoming homeless is is I don't think something that we ever dealt with in our lifetime. So like I would ask like you know if you are a renter who can make your rent like you know think about that think about how you can get involved in your local situation because like we this is really this is really the moment where we have to demonstrate solidarity as a class of renters. Yeah, I I I, and I feel. I, mean, I don't think it's the right thing to kind of say this is the main problem, but I do worry we're also going to see people with the means are going to say, well, you know, screw all these, you know, metros where cost of living is much. I'm going to go out to exurban Phoenix, you know, buy my McMansion and I'll never have to wear the renter's world again because I think every every body you have in your movement matters. And I more than not, I'd like them to remain <laughs> in the movement yeah. more, more than I'd like to see them in exurban Phoenix. And I worry that's kind of the path of least resistance more often than not oh totally and then and that's what i'm saying it was like i'm seeing like you know like in terms of like i see in sort of like my more like professional managerial class i mean not going to call that a separate class in itself i know it's a controversy it's not a separate class but necessarily but yeah i see more in my like white collar if you will uh networks where I hear people being like, yeah, I'm just going to head out of San Francisco. I'm going to head out of the Bay Area and, you know, I'll come back when the rental price is more favorable or I won't, you know, like maybe I just got to like, you know, f- off to like Boulder or, you know, maybe I'll just like rent an Airbnb in Tahoe, which is a whole nother thing because like, please, 
please don't go to a please don't go to a place where there is a rural healthcare system that has very few COVID beds. Don't take your plague there. I don't know. What's a please? Please don't take your city slicker. Side note: Please don't take your city slicker butt to a place uh, where there's a rural healthcare infrastructure that may not be able to handle what you're bringing with you. But anyway. Um, uh, that that's a total side note, just something I feel strongly about because I hear it so much. Um, but but uh, yeah, like people will be like, yeah, you know, I'm just gonna peace out to this other metro, and maybe I'll I'm gonna come back to San Francisco because I think the rental prices are gonna go down, and that's so different from what I actually experience in my work, where people are like, oh my god, like my landlord threw my shit out, and I'm gonna be homeless and susceptible to COVID, and like I it it, it really is different. It really is like splitting the the, the renter. It, it's it, they're both renters, but they're totally separate experiences, right? Yeah, I think I think there's room to build solidarity even among that bridge, but it's hard, you know. Yeah, that's what we have to do, yeah. right? But hearing those things at the same time right now is is quite hard. Yeah, so we've been talking for a while. I think it's time to to wrap up here. Any 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 final thoughts? Um. Not particularly, but like, you know, I, I do, I will, uh, you know, put in a little bit of a plug. Um, uh, the, so if you're in San Francisco, which I know a lot of your listeners aren't, but like uh, DSA San Francisco is going to be starting a tenant solidarity group um, that will be focused not on land use, but on a, a direct action uh, related to evictions and displacement related to COVID in San Francisco. But also, like, Tons Together is a network of 45 existing organizations. We are, are, what most of the work we do is not actually in places where a lot of those organizations operate. It's not in places like, San Fr- like, I, we do no work in San Francisco almost, but, like, it is operating, and was before the pandemic, operating in places that have no tenant laws, no rent control, no just cause, no rent remediation programs, no nothing and trying to encourage people who are trying to organize there to organize there and right now what we have what we've had for many years but now we have a volunteer run uh we've had a volunteer run tenant counseling hotline that has always served uh people who didn't have any legal aid near them or didn't qualify for legal aid by income um or uh folks who are undocumented etc like our hotline has always been a statewide hotline run by trained volunteers, um, which is obviously operating at maximum capacity right now. If, you know, a, a land use arguments or anything else aside, like what tenants together, most of what we do is trying to organize where there is no organization, where there is no protection. And then also um, serving populations who don't have access to legal aid or tenant counseling, which has been through the roof during this pandemic. If you're able to contribute or you actually like aren't willing to contribute and you're skeptical and you want to learn more, if your organization wants to join, if you want to be part of this fight to cancel rent and cancel mortgages, if you want to like be part of the, this broader movement, if you want to be in a space where you can talk to other organizations from across the state or train tenant organizers who are just getting started to be able to found and start tenant unions in other places, then like that is what Tenants Together is here for. So, like, if you are interested, I am always here to talk to you, anybody about it. Well, great. Yeah, it's been, it's been, been a pleasure to talk. If you ever want to come back for the legendary uh, Georgism versus Marxism debate, uh, you know, uh, the line's we always should. open. Yeah, that might not happen now, but I'm totally, yeah. 
Well, we can throw it out about Landy's later. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's going to be ugly, but now's not the time. Uh, but, yeah, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Mark. It's an honor and a privilege. We have been talking to Shanti Singh of Tenants Together and DSASF all about the eviction crisis, what can be done, what's being done, and much more. You can find this episode of the program and all previous episodes at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Keys Shoe, Stanford. <laughs>